0: Hello and welcome to episode 345 of the UK True Crime Podcast. I'm Adam. Thank you so much for joining me today. And a huge thank you to Megan Grant for the research and writing of this episode, which involves a hugely disturbing murder from the south of England. I should warn you that today's story is particularly graphic. Now, I'm about as popular advertised at the moment as the Bank of England is with normal people. So unlike the Bank of England let's not make it worse by delaying unnecessarily and instead move quickly and set some context for our guest The month and year game. At number three in the UK music charts this week was a true classic, Jump from Chris Cross. Come on, tell me you've never danced and I use the term loosely to this. At number three in the US charts was the Red Hot Chili Peppers with Under the Bridge. And in Australia... The top album this week was Michael Crawford performs Andrew Lloyd Webber. I had to read that carefully. In the news this month, Batman Returns was released starring Michael Keaton as Batman, Danny DeVito as the Penguin and George Galloway as Catwoman. It was the last day of test crickets for English star players Ian Botham and Alan Lamb. Yitzhak Rabin won the Israeli parliamentary election And in the UK, the big news, if you remember, was the introduction of the Cones Hotline, enabling members of the public to complain about traffic cones being deployed on a road for no apparent reason. Is it still a thing, do you know? And finally, Ravenscraig Steelworks, the largest hot strip steel mill in Western Europe, closed, ending steelmaking in Scotland. So did you guess the month and year? It was June 1992. Oh well, maybe next week will be the one. About 30 miles southwest of London on the borders of Hampshire and Berkshire is Camberley, which is in the county of Surrey. In the 1860s, Camberley was named Cambridge Town before it was changed to Camberley to avoid confusion with the English city with the ridiculously priced car parks, which shares the same name. Cambly is proud of the close ties it has with the Royal Military Academy in nearby Sandhurst and no doubt like me, you'll be beside yourself with delight to be reminded that Prince Harry trained here in 2005 as an officer cadet before finishing his training and being commissioned as an army officer. When we pick up today's story in June 1992, Katie Ratcliffe was an 18-year-old trainee hairdresser with dreams and ambitions of owning her own salon. She was into music, into fashion, she was into fun. And all those who knew Katie described her as being full of energy and someone who was so passionate about her career in hairdressing. Katie had been living with her parents and her sister Joanne. Then after a family row, she moved in with her best friend Michelle Fisher. She'd also recently split from her first serious boyfriend, Metin, which caused her a lot of heartache. One night on the 6th of June 1992, Katie went out with friends, including her pal Michelle, to the local nightclub in Camberley called Ragamuffins. Her friends hoped that a good night out would take her mind off the breakup. She was devastated by what had happened. But as so often after a night in a club, memories of what happened at the end of the evening are a little confused. We've all been there, right? For whatever reason, at the end of the evening, Katie became become separated from her friends who were due to give her a lift home. Some of her friends believed that Katie had maybe left the club with somebody else. And it was also thought she might have been looking for Metin outside the nightclub. As one person thought they heard Katie say at about 2am in the car park, where's Metin? And it was actually reported that her ex was in the club that night, but he was with a new girlfriend. And of course it devastated her. She asked him if there was a chance they could get back together. It seems she got upset by this incident and that's when she potentially ran off alone into the dark streets. It was several hours later when Katie's lifeless body was discovered three miles away in a cemetery in Farnborough by four schoolboys on an early morning walk after camping out for the evening. The autopsy revealed the extent and the just horrific nature of Katie's injuries. She'd been stabbed a total of 32 times, including knife wounds to her liver, stomach, lungs and heart. There were also knife wounds which were deemed intentional to intimate areas of her body, and it was feared that these may have been made while she was still alive. The jewellery that Katie was wearing that night was stolen. The local community were appalled by what had happened, and the police launched a huge investigation, believing they were looking for a man aged between 20 and 30. Katie's dad, Joseph, and her mum, Helen, pleaded desperately for help in catching the man who had killed their daughter. Literally shaking with emotion, Joseph told a news conference, We are numbed by the senseless killing of our daughter. Katie was a lovable person possessed for life. Please, can anyone with any information... Contact police. Detectives made extensive inquiries, including appearing on Crime Watch and offering a reward. And all but 50 of the 500 customers at Ragamuffins on the night of the murder were interviewed. But the lead they were looking for evaded them. And nobody was charged with Katie's death. And in time, of course, other priorities arose for the hard pressed police force and there was less focus on finding the person who murdered Katie, and the killer remained on the loose. Detectives could never have suspected that the person who killed Katie was not a 20-year-old or 30-year-old sadistic man. It was in fact a local 12-year-old schoolgirl named Sharon Carr. It appeared that Sharon's ambition of being a killer and getting away with it had come true, She'd shown no remorse for the crime and disturbingly gloated about it in her diary, she said. I bring the knife into her chest, her eyes are closing. She is pleading with me so I bring the knife to her again and again. I don't want to hurt her, but I do need to do violence to her. I need to overcome her beauty, her serenity, her security. There I see her face when she died. I know she feels her life being slowly drawn from her and I hear her gasp. I guess she was trying to breathe. The air stops in the back of her throat. I know all her life her breathing has worked but it does not now and I'm joyful. Killing her did me good. Now I know what I'm capable of and I'll do it again. I bet she's all bone and maggots by now. She shouldn't have tested. I believe in pain as the mirror of the extreme perfection of man's ability. The sublimination of the ego, the resurrection of the animal, the supreme animal. That's why she had to be killed. So just who was Sharon Carr? Sharon was born in Belize in Central America on the 21st of December 1979 and she was raised in a very challenging home environment. She grew up in great poverty with her three siblings and was raised by her mum. Her dad was a violent alcoholic. When Sharon was young, her mum met a man called George Carr, who was a member of the Royal Army Medical Corps serving in Belize. The family left Belize in the early 1980s and moved to England, where they settled in Camberley. At home, Sharon was subjected to very cruel abuse at the hands of her mum, and shortly after starting their new life in England, a serious domestic incident occurred, which led to Sharon spending a brief period in foster care. In an interview with George in 1997, he described how he wanted to end the marriage with Sharon's mum, but as he came into the family home, his wife poured a pot of hot fat over his head, his arms and his chest. Following the attack in 1987, Sharon's mum received a suspended sentence and was ordered to undergo three years of psychiatric treatment. The couple divorced soon afterwards. Sharon witnessed this attack, and according to George, she remained incredibly calm during it. At school, teachers described Sharon as a polite student who was always helpful. Her friends found her sociable, but she preferred the company of older boys. She was active around the school and played on the school's basketball team. But this good behaviour gradually disappeared as she got older, And this child started to show flashes of an aggressive and frightening nature. By the age of 11, she was regularly smoking cannabis and she earned a reputation for being violent both at school and with her neighbours at home. She frequently intimidated her neighbours and harassed the residents in the street. And this aggressive behaviour soon developed into murder when Sharon brutally murdered a neighbourhood dog, but it wasn't an isolated act. It is said that in Sharon's house, the family would practice voodoo by torturing and killing animals, including the decapitation of a neighbour's cat, and many local pets apparently went missing at this time. Clearly Sharon's behaviour was in decline, but surely nobody could have considered her able to murder at just 12 years old. And Sharon could well have got away with Katie's murder, if she hadn't planned to celebrate the anniversary of her first kill by trying to kill again. On the second anniversary of Katie's murder, of June 1994, Sharon struck again. At Collingwood College in Camberley, where Sharon attended school, she lured her 13-year-old classmate Anne-Marie Clifford into the toilets under the false pretenses of helping her look for a pound coin. Once inside the toilet, Sharon plunged a knife into Anne-Marie's back, puncturing her lungs. Fortunately, Anne-Marie survived the violent attack, which was only stopped when students walked into the toilets and intervened. Anne-Marie said later that Sharon was smiling and seemed happy while she was attacking her. Sharon was quickly arrested and sent to a nearby assessment centre, where it was reported that she unsuccessfully attempted to strangle two of the detention staff. In December '94, Sharon was charged with two counts of actual bodily harm and detained at Her Majesty's pleasure. She had been held in various psychiatric facilities but continued to assault females wherever she went, resulting in her being transferred to an all-boys unit at a secure centre. Nearly a year later, in September '95, she was then transferred to a young offender's institution as it was a belief that her aggressive and sexualised behaviour could be better managed there. And shortly after she arrived there, the staff discovered that Sharon had been talking about the murder of Katie to her friends and family and had written further diary entries about the murder. At this time, Sharon attacked a prison officer who she said she had a crush on and she'd spoken about her crimes to a probation officer. The staff had alerted the police who then seized all Sharon's drawings and writings. In the diaries, Sharon detailed sexual excitement at the thought of Katie's death and she commented how she felt jealous of her victim and made remarks about how the devil forces motivated her to kill. One entry said, If only I could kill you again I promise I would make you suffer more this time you fucking slag. Your terrified screams turn me on. She'd also written, I was born to be a murderer. Killing for me is a mass turn-on, and it just makes me so high I never want to come down. Every night I see the devil in my dreams, sometimes even in my mirror, but I realise it was just me. And I've got a taste for red rum, and I want to get drunk. Alongside these entries were drawings of what was assumed to be the knife that killed Katie. When Sharon was interviewed by detectives, she gave three different stories as to what had happened on the night of the killing. She said how she'd been in a car, which gave Katie lift, which is how she came to meet her. The one theme that remained consistent in each story is that she confessed to the murder. In two of the stories, Sharon stated how the two boys of her in the car at the time engaged in sexual activity with Katie before dumping her body and provided the police with their names. But when police interviewed the boys, they provided alibis for each other, which eliminated them from their inquiry. Sharon went on to graphically describe in detail one specific injury, the details of which the police had deliberately withheld. And despite there being no forensic evidence, such detailed knowledge of Katie's injuries would only be known by the killer. In addition, Sharon stated how she'd stolen Katie's bracelet, which the police also did not disclose had been taken. Following the questioning from the police, Sharon continued to boast about the murder in her diary and in January 96, she gave even more confessions to the prison officer that she had a crush on. One that was written on the fourth anniversary of Katie's murder stated, Respect to Katie Ratcliffe, four years ago today. In May 1996, Sharon Carr was charged with the murder of Katie Ratcliffe and after a month-long trial at Winchester Crown Court, the jury reached unanimous verdict that Sharon was guilty of murder and not manslaughter. This conviction meant that Sharon Carr was Britain's youngest ever female murderer at the age of 12. Whilst it's often believed that the youngest female killer was Mary Bell, who was convicted at 11 for killing two boys in 1968, she was only charged with manslaughter and not murder. The judge at the trial commented on the dangerousness of Sharon, by stating, The evidence suggests you were not alone when you stabbed Katie Ratcliffe to death. Who the others were and what part they played remains unclear. What is clear is that you had a sexual motive for this killing, and it's apparent both from the brutal murder in which you mutilated her body and chilling entries in your diary that killing, as you put it, turned you on. You are, in my view, an extremely dangerous young woman. As Sharon left the dock following the conviction, she was smiling. Sharon received a minimum sentence of 14 years in prison and shortly after the sentencing she was diagnosed with schizoaffective disorder. This condition is where sufferers experience elements of psychosis as well as mood symptoms. In addition, she has also been diagnosed with multiple borderline and antisocial personality disorders. One professional said of her, She's clearly a very, very troubled young woman from a very difficult upbringing, so it's hard to disentangle what's what. Whilst in prison, Sharon's aggressive and violent nature continued. She was originally held at Holloway Prison before being transferred to Broadmoor in 1998. During her time there, she continued to attack staff and other residents, even admitting to wanting to kill a fellow inmate by slitting their throat. There were occasions during her stay there when she believed she was a lizard and attempted to cut herself to find out whether she was still a human. Sharon made the news again in 2001 when it was reported she was due to marry fellow Broadmoor resident Robert Lane. The couple had been dating for nine months before the proposal and had paid for rings for each other from Argos. Robert had been detained in the hospital in 1996 after murdering his mum, Linda Pennell. If you recall the case, it's just just the worst case. You'll remember he committed a devastating attack where he brutally beat her to death and gorged her eyes out. However, a very strange ending to this uh, engagement. When the couple read a news report detailing their own crimes, they were so disgusted by each other that they called their wedding off. I know, very strange, huh? In 2004, Sharon's defence team attempted to challenge her minimum tariff for 14 years, as well as trying to change the conviction from murder to manslaughter on the grounds of diminished responsibility, but these appeals were dismissed. She moved around to different institutions on a number of occasions, and by December 2018, Sharon was moved to Law Newton Prison, but again was quickly moved back to Bronzefield after a violent altercation with another inmate in August 2019. During the same year, she applied for her restricted status to be downgraded, but this was denied. She appealed again against this decision in 2020, but again was denied on the grounds that she had not provided any significant evidence for risk reduction. During this process, it was discovered that Sharon had disclosed thoughts of wanting to murder another inmate by splitting her head open with a flask and then throwing her down the flight of stairs. The judge gave a warning that if Sharon was given relaxed conditions, she would be likely to form intense relationships with females that turned into violent fantasies when thwarted. Despite this ruling, two years later, near the end of 2022, Sharon was attempting to apply for parole. And as far as I can tell, that is where we are with Sharon Carr today. So, what do you make of what we've heard today? The idea that a child could become a statistic murderer is one that terrifies all of us, I think, isn't it? And questioning what makes someone so young so violent, the old questions of nature and nurture. These questions have been studied by researchers through history trying to determine the psychological makeup of children who kill. Murders committed by juveniles are thankfully exceedingly rare. But when they do occur, it of course, sends the media into a frenzy. There are, it seems, certain characteristics that make up a juvenile killer, which relate to their background, it's usually low socioeconomic status, harsh parenting, and exclusion from school, and environmental factors such as the availability of weapons, family disorganisation, abusive home environment, and violent family life. And interestingly, preteen killers appear to share similarities to adolescent killers regarding their background characteristics. When looking at the childhood of Sharon Carr, it's clear that she ticks the boxes for many of the characteristics I've just mentioned for juvenile killers. But while there's no denying that Sharon Carr was subjected to cruel and callous physical and psychological abuse at home and witnessed horrendous acts of violence, many others have seen similar or worse but they've not become sadistic killers. So just what was it that caused Sharon to carry out one of the most horrific attacks we've ever witnessed in the UK? We have, due to the nature of the crime, spoken a lot about the murderer this week rather than the victim of the brutal attack, Katie Ratcliffe. Katie was just 18 when she lost her life to this terrifying attack from a stranger. And because of this, her family and friends have had the opportunity for many times with Katie taken from them. And for what? Just because on one summer's evening, she was unfortunate enough to cross paths with Sharon Carr. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode of the UK True Crime Podcast. To discuss this story and any other aspects of UK True Crime, please head to Facebook and join over 90,000 of us who talk UK True Crime 24-7. It's many things, it's never dull. And to support the show, and why wouldn't you, please head to Patreon for over 50 bonus episodes and loads of other exclusive content. A huge thank you to the latest members of this community. That's Josephine Robinson, Nicola Chivers, Stuart Donaldson and Nicola Bingham. Your support is, as I hope you know, so much appreciated. If you want to join our community, if you join Patreon on an annual basis, I'm currently offering a 15% discount on an annual support package. So just head over to patreon.com slash UK True Crime. So that's all for me, the 37th most popular UK True Crime podcast for another week. So until we speak again on Tuesday, please do take it easy. And remember, despite all the others, stay classy. Cheerio for now. A woo a hand clap a high-fiver. I kind of like the high-five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At ChumbaCasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses, so don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and quickly